0: Hi, Missio. Your scripture reading for today is Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Man, Welcome, everybody. My name is Johnny Morrison. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're new, it's good to have you. Uh, If you are new and you'd like to get connected to Missio, learn more about us, figure out how to get involved in a house church or just like what we care about or what's going on during the week... Normally we would have like a booth that you could go and talk to somebody at, but obviously during COVID, that's a little sketchy to do. So instead of having a booth or someone that you talk to, you can go to our website, missioslc.com connect, and fill out like a digital connect card where we'll get in contact with you. You can say, I want prayer, or I just want to learn more, or, I want information about these kinds of things, and you can get connected there. Cool? <laughs> Sweet. <laughs> I realized after I asked that question, I was like, it's it's kind of a rhetorical question. That's not your fault. All right, I want to start with a bit of like an imaginative exercise. This is inspired by Sydney and Lydia. Just like some kind of imaginative exercise to get our brains moving and get us thinking. So I just want to ask a question, and then give us a second to reflect on that question. And here it is. How do you picture God? How do you picture God? How do you image God? How do you imagine God when maybe you go to pray or to worship? What images or metaphors or ideas or uh, thoughts come to your mind as you begin to pray or to worship or to think about who God is? When you talk about God, what do you imagine? you're having a conversation with somebody about God and maybe you're describing God's nature or God's character or your own experiences with this thing called God like what words come to mind what ideas come to mind what pictures come to mind that that shape and form the hue of God when you feel alone or fearful or angry or sad or confused, and you find your heart or your emotions kind of pulling towards the divine. What do you picture? What do you imagine? What do you think about? Maybe just to help you think creatively, I, I compiled a few cultural images of God. Uh, one very popular cultural image of God is the creation of Adam. Here you go this bearded white guy, very fun, surrounded by creepy children. Maybe that's what you picture. Uh, I understand why you are uncomfortable with God. Uh, Another image, maybe you picture uh, Morgan Freeman. Hasn't aged well. Maybe you picture the God from Monty Python. This is my favorite image. This is like angry white guy just opening up the clouds and peering down at you. What image or picture or representation or metaphor or thought or idea of God comes into your mind when I ask you the question, how do you picture God? You have these cultural images of God, these images that we see up here presented behind us, but we also carry within us images that are formed by our tradition or our religious heritage or the experiences that we've had. Some of those images are beautiful. We're probably in this room because of some of those images have drawn us into this space that some kind of encounter or experience or idea that you've heard about God leads you to worship on a Sunday or leads you to join a house church or leads you to read your Bible, right? You have these images that are probably really beautiful and sustaining, and yet they're often mixed with images that are confusing, if we're honest, or sometimes really painful, or sometimes really small feeling, And these images and these experiences and these traditions and these habits and all of these things that form and answer the question of how do we picture God, they they sort of shape for us what you could say is like your gallery of God in your mind. Most of us have more than one image of God, and so if you kind of like close your eyes and you enter into the gallery of your mind, there's probably a handful of images that are up there, some in crystal clear form, some that you love, they're beautiful, some that are terrifying and yet they're still crystal clear, some that are hiding in the back corner and you're not exactly sure what that image represents, some that are kind of pasted over and marred and deformed or just... Shadowed, and you're not exactly sure what that image even reveals to you. We have all of these images of God, and these images matter because our image of God directly determines our relationship with God. In fact, I, this might sound like an exaggeration, but the more that I think about it, the less I think it is an exaggeration. I don't know that there is a single thing that is maybe more important to determining what your life and your worship is going to look like than the image of God that you hold. The image of God that you have determines the relationship with God that you have. How we live, how we worship, how we treat one another, how we treat ourselves will all be shaped by the image of God that we hold. One Bible scholar, G.K. Beale, says we become what we worship for either ruin or restoration, that we actually become like the thing that we worship. And it's not just a theological or philosophical concept. There's social science research to show that the image of God that we hold will actually determine the kinds of lives that we live. University of Michigan did a handful of studies on if we hold violent images of God, that we are actually more prone to aggressive behavior. The image of God that we hold determines the lives that we live, the way that we worship, the ethics that we live by. The problem is that it is not always easy to figure out what is the right image of God to hold. Our image determines our relationship, but it is not easy to get a clear picture of who God is. We go to church like this on a Sunday morning or the churches of our youth. And again, we have probably inherited from those experiences beautiful images of God, so beautiful, in fact, that we're here, that we're continuing to worship. And yet, as I sit with people and have like counseling sessions and hear people's stories, it's always a bit mixed. There's beautiful images and often very painful images or confusing images or strange images we go to the bible and uh unfortunately that's also true there like you think that this source is going to be like the answer to all of my god questions and then you read it and you're like whoa hold up god is like what god told her to do what what does that mean about this person that we center our lives around? What does that mean about the, the orientation of our faith? What does it mean for us if this is the God that is at the, at the center of our worship? You know, we don't know exactly what a clear image of God is, and we're not even sure exactly where to get a clear image of God. And all of these experiences and all of these traditions and all of these sources, they kind of mix together to shape Are images of God. And so we are left with that gallery of images. Some beautiful, some very helpful, some intimidating and scary, and some out of focus or marred. And so the question for us today and then for all of the season of Lent and the next series that we are beginning today is, what do we do with these images of God that we hold? These images that so shape the way that we worship, that so shape our ethics, that so shape the space that we're in right here, that shape everything about our Christian existence. What do we do with those images and how do we see God clearly? How do we gain an image of God that is clear, that is helpful, that is true, that sends us into life in a way that is true and helpful and real. Now, luckily, we are in good company asking this question, because lots of people have been asking this question. In fact, I don't think it would be difficult to say that the central question of the Bible is, who is God? And how do we image God, and how do we make sense of who this character is. And so today, to help us walk through that, we're going to locate ourselves in Hebrews chapter 1, where the author of this letter, who we don't exactly know, is addressing a church. And it is a church that is made up of Jewish and non-Jewish believers. And these two groups of people, well, they bring vastly different images of God to the story that they are telling with their lives. Jewish believers bring an image of God shaped by the Old Testament scriptures, and so they have some context, some history that forms it. But that image, if you have read the New Testament, you know, often actually blocks them from seeing all that God is doing. And then you have non-Jewish believers who are entering into the story with vastly different images of God. And so the writer of Hebrews is seeking to bring to the people an image of God that is bigger and clearer. And the writer, she says in Hebrews 1, verse 1, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. Now just sit here for a second, be very quick to pass that moment by, but that's actually kind of a remarkable statement. We believe in a God that speaks a God that reveals themselves. In fact, as Christians, kind of as Lydia said in the Missio Voice, like we have a family history that we come from, a history that we belong to, and that history is marked by a God that communicates, a God that reveals, a God that speaks, a God that stoops to be known and knowable. How marvelous is that, that we believe in a God that reveals themselves and that has been revealing themselves throughout the story of history. As you read the Bible, as you encounter the prophets, as you hear this family history, you are encountering images of God, and they are beautiful, and at moments so helpful. And they guided Israel and led Israel into whole new understandings of God that challenged the culture's around them. But if you've read your Old Testament you know that some of those images are also hard. And it's not always clear how those images correspond to who God is or who God reveals themselves to be in the New Testament. And we are not alone in thinking that. The Apostle Paul says the same thing in Colossians 2:17, The Apostle Paul says the Old Testament is a shadow of things to come, an image that is dimly lit, to use Paul's language from 1 Corinthians 13. That there is an image, there is a picture, there is this story that is showing us who God is, but it is a little shadowy, a little dimly lit, a little confusing, at times hard to get our mind around, at times uncomfortable. And not only does Paul say this, God says this. This is a beautiful moment in one of the prophets, the book of Hosea, where God communicates to the people through Hosea about how they perceive God and about how God wants to be perceived. This is the text, Hosea 2, verse 16. Prophet speaking on behalf of God says this Someday declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and you will no longer call me my master even though Israel had these beautiful images of God, they were not sufficient. They were not complete. They were not up to date. They did not capture fully who God was or what kind of relationship God wanted to have with God's people. Israel, often like the nations around them, imagined God as a master. And maybe that master was better than the ancient Near Eastern deities around them, but still as a master. And God's like, I want you to see me as a loving spouse and our relationship to be enveloped and wrapped in loving mutuality. I want this relationship to be more than just a king and their people, but something beautiful and robust. I want you to know me in love. And so we have these beautiful words, these beautiful images from the Old Testament. Once upon a time, God spoke through the prophets. But the writer of Hebrews says, but now something new is happening. In these last days, God has spoken to us by his Son. And the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. But right, in various ways, God has spoken, and it was good and beautiful and helpful. But now, God is offering a bigger word, a more perfect word, Jesus. Jesus is the perfect image of God. All these years, we have been trying to piece together images of God from the teachings of the prophet or the stories of rescue or exodus or exile. And we've been reading this story, we've gotten these beautiful, helpful, amazing images of God mixed with our own cultural conceptions that we project onto God, and we've been trying to figure out what to do, and in the midst of all of that, the writer says God has broken through to offer us a perfect word, Jesus. Jesus is the perfect image of God, the clear and perfect picture of God. The Apostle John says the same thing when introducing Jesus to the world in John 1 v. 18. It says this, No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God, and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. This is actually a fascinating verse because it's not 100% true to say that no one in the Old Testament had seen God. In the book of Exodus, Moses sees God. He's on the mountaintop and God reveals God's self to Moses. And if you would enter into the tabernacle or the temple, you would have experiences with the presence of God. Or if you saw the flame that led Israel or the cloud at night, those were demonstrations of God's presence. So in some ways, people actually had seen John, but John is here saying, no one has seen God like this. Something new is happening in this moment. No one has seen God like this. In Jesus, we get the clearest, perfect image and revelation of God. So you want to know what God is like, you look to Jesus. As you see Jesus protect a woman who is exploited in adultery, you say, that's what God is like. And as you see Jesus party with the most unexpected of communities, you see, that's what God is like. As you see Jesus challenge religious leaders and religious systems, you see what God is like. And when you see Jesus die in sacrificial love for his enemies, you see what God is like. Jesus is the perfect image of God. This is a beautiful idea, one I think we should be familiar with as Christians, though I think it's pretty easy for it to get lost, but it's a beautiful idea, but it is also a deeply challenging idea if we're honest with ourselves. Because just as much as Jesus reveals who God is, Jesus also challenges all of our faults and small images of God. This is the controversy of Jesus' life in the early Christian movement. In John 10, verse 30 through 33, you have this really fascinating moment where the religious leaders around Jesus respond very negatively to Jesus because of the things that he's claiming about himself. And in verse 30, it says this, Jesus declares, I and the Father are one. Again, his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus said to them, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? And they responded, We are not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. The controversy of Jesus' life is that he claims to be God, but maybe even more specifically, that he claims and reveals a certain kind of God. Right? The controversy and the challenge of Jesus is not simply that he is God in the flesh, though that is challenging and that is controversial and that is wild. But maybe the even more difficult challenge of Jesus' incarnation and the claims that Jesus make is the kind of God revealed in Jesus what it says about the God that we worship, what it says about the Bible that we read, what it says about our theologies and our thinking and our religious systems that we bring into this faith. Israel, who is responding so negatively to Jesus in this moment, had images of God that they loved. They believed God looked sort of like the gods of the cultures around them. They believed that their God would be violent, would show up and battle enemies and overthrow nations and restore them to political power and political might. And they tried to take this image of who God is and actually force it onto the person of Jesus. And at every turn, Jesus refuses to play that God role, which is what makes them so frustrated with him that he challenges their image of God. And this is true of us. That we have images that are painful and unhelpful as we have already named, but we also have images that of God, of God that are still painful, but that we like to hold on to. We have the ones that we want to reject, the images of God that we want to get rid of, but then we have a whole other set of images of God that we are deeply comfortable with, that we really like, that really give us a sense of security or a sense of purpose or a sense of meaning or a sense of safety or whatever the emotion is. And those images, they, they actually take that gallery of God that we have and they begin to place over those pictures, things that we've written or drawings that we have. And they begin to cover the image of God and our own values, our own hopes, our own expectations. German theologian Karl Barth used to say, sometimes our God talk is actually just us talking about ourselves in loud and reverent voices. It's not that hard to see where we do this. We look at how our God talk and our God images show up in politics, and we see that pretty often, if you're progressive, your God looks pretty progressive. If you're conservative, your God looks pretty conservative, and you will fight pretty hard for that image of God you look at the tradition that you came from, if you grew up in a religious tradition, it's not that hard to, to, to piece out where that God begins to take the form of the tradition that you inherited. Where I think it gets a little trickier to see is where we do that in our own like interiority, in our personal lives, in our heart. It's a little harder to name where our shame, where our judgment, or our pride or our greed or our racism gets overlaid, our images of God. So then the God we worship ends up becoming a projection of ourself, but it happens so subtly and secretly. But here's the thing, if Jesus is the perfect image of God, then that means that he is also the ultimate revelation of God, and all other images, all other traditions, all other stories must be compared, contrasted, submitted to Jesus. And if they do not lead to Jesus, they need to be evaluated and probably rejected. If your image of God is rooted in fear and religiosity and it does not lead you to Jesus, that image probably needs to be rejected. If your image of God is always of one that sides with your team, that needs to be rejected because that does not lead you to Jesus. If your image of God is of a white dude, it needs to be rejected. If your image of God is one is violent and conquering the oppressor, it needs to be rejected because Jesus is the one who lays down his life for his enemy. And this is true, I think, this is true for everyone, but I think it is most difficult for those of us who have grown up in this tradition, who have grown up loving Jesus and grown up in the church hearing stories and faith traditions, because when I say that Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God and all things need to be submitted to Jesus, that also includes our religious traditions. Jesus says this very thing in John 5, verse 39. He's talking to the religious leaders again, who are the people most like us. I know we like to alienate them, but if you're in this room, most likely that's your team. Sorry. This is what Jesus says in John 5, 39 to them. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. You ever done that? But these very scriptures testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Jesus is saying that your reading of this, or their reading of this, is not leading to him, and so it needs to be rejected. That is not an easy word if you're an evangelical, which is me. Jesus is the supreme, ultimate, perfect word of God. That means that all other words, even other words of God, according to the writer of Hebrews 1, need to be submitted to the person of Jesus. If they do not lead us to Jesus, we are not understanding them. We are not reading them. We are not approaching them appropriately. If they do not get us to Jesus, we have a problem. Jesus is The perfect image and the ultimate revelation of God. This leads us to our final thing. If those things are true, which we believe they are, then it means this, where it also includes this that Jesus, who is the image of God, the perfect revelation of God, is the very center of our faith. Nothing else is. The writer of Hebrews, after introducing this text this way, in Hebrews chapter 12, says this, Now let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus the pioneer or founder and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. When our images of God are confused, our faith is confused. When our image of God looks like anything other than Jesus, our faith stops looking like Jesus. When our faith is about anything other than Jesus, our faith becomes about other things than Jesus. We start making our faith about moralism and holiness, good things, but I don't fix my eyes on moralism or holiness. Our faith isn't about justice or peace, good things, but I don't fix my eyes on justice Or peace. My faith is not about church attendance or participation in religious events. Good things. That's what pays my bills. (laughs) But I fix my eyes on Jesus. My faith is not about politics and activism. Good things. But I do not fix my eyes there. All of those things matter. You hear me? They matter. They are important. They are beautiful. But they are not the center of our faith. Jesus is. And when Jesus is the center and the object of our faith, these good and right and beautiful things, well, they actually begin to find a proper place within our faith. Our faith is not about holiness. It's about Jesus. But when faith becomes about Jesus, holiness has a place to belong because it is about us being like Jesus. Holiness in and of itself is nothing. It only makes sense as it is a calling into Christ-likeness. The Bible is not the center of our faith. Jesus is. But when Jesus is the center of our faith, the Bible becomes a beautiful and God-breathed instrument for knowing and encountering Jesus. Justice and peace, things that we love to talk about, things we love to pursue, are not the center of our faith. Jesus is, but when Jesus is the center of our faith, politics and justice become the ethics of God's people because they are what Jesus is bringing. Messiah, we are a Jesus-centered people, a Jesus-centered faith. That is why we are called Christians, little Christ, because we are a Jesus-centered people. And if our faith is found in anything else, well, we have an issue. And as a people, we need to begin to restore to the very center of our faith, Jesus. And every other image and every other God and every other picture and every other thing that tries to claim supremacy over the center of our faith needs to be moved back into its proper place. They are probably good images, right revelations, good practices, but they live in and only Jesus. So, What if we did that? What if we did restore our faith, our own hearts, our own lives to being Jesus-centered? We're going to talk about this over the next handful of weeks to continue to try to restore and enlarge and grapple and wrestle with our images of Jesus. But just as we conclude, I think if we begin to restore Jesus as the center of our faith and the image of God, there's a few things that will begin to happen. First, I think we will begin to heal. We will heal from images of God that have been so hurtful, so painful, but we have not known what to do with them because we've not known how to see them. We've not had a set of lenses to look at things that we inherited or traditions that we were given or even images that we read. And here, we've not known what to do with them. And all of a sudden, as we begin to see through Jesus and even see this through Jesus, we have a way of embodying and engaging this faith. That can be healing and life giving, that gives new power to the whole reading of it. And I think as it helps us heal, it will also help us, like, talk back to negative images of God that we've inherited. Oh, this image doesn't look like Jesus. Get. And as we talk back to these negative images, and, and even to use a word I haven't used in a long time, rebuke negative images of God through Jesus and through the image of Jesus, then I think it also gives us a new freedom to buck and challenge and push against scriptures and traditions that have, in the name of these false images, then made our faith about something false. So we'll begin to find new freedom to live into the way of Jesus, not the way of this sect of Christianity or this sect of Christianity or this political orientation or this thing. And finally, I think it will empower us and most certainly call us to live the most compelling and life-altering way. Christians as they were getting the name Christians, little Christ were also called followers of the way because they were followers of the way of Jesus. And this way of Jesus that we'll see in the weeks to come modeled and pictured on the person of Jesus is so strange and so beautiful. And the only thing that makes all of this compelling See, as we restore the image of God, I think as Jesus, we begin to restore the way of Jesus to us. And that is a way that is rooted in the love of God displayed on the cross. And that, well, man, that actually offers us in the world something. This is why Jesus described himself as the way, the truth, and the life. So, Missio, as we close, I want to leave you with three questions revolving around this. What are your images of God? And four questions. What are your images of God? Where did they come from? What do they make your faith about? That might actually be the easiest way to interrogate back up. If you can see what the priority of your faith is, you'll begin to reveal the center of your faith. And does the way of your faith and the God of your faith, does it look like Jesus? This is the question that matters most. Do those images of God look like Jesus? They don't. And would you step into something more free? Would you step into the radical love of Jesus? Would you let the person of Jesus challenge your images? Now, one of the ways that we do this is hearing the story that we've just declared. Another way that we do it is singing, and we're going to continue singing. And so as you sing with us, and as David and Isaac lead us in worship, would you... Would you let this like, transforming image of Jesus be at the forefront of your imagination? Would you actually start to picture Jesus? The song that David's about to lead us through is going to actually call us into that and help us do that. And so would you let it do that? Let it form your imagination. And even before you get there, we have one more practice that begins to help us do that, which is the table. table is the way that we actually practice the story of Jesus, where we remember, oh, Jesus is the God who dies to call us home, the God who displays their love for us on the cross. So these things that we do today, they're all about centering us back on Jesus. So would you just take a moment after I pray, and to use these practices, table and then worship, to begin to transform your image of God and center it on the person of Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, today, help us to know you. Would we encounter you through this story and through the songs and through the table and through prayers and through one another? And would our encounters of you radically transform the image of God that we hold, so that we would see God through you? Would that press on our painful images, our prideful images, our falsely religious images, our shameful images? And would it truly free us and empower us to live a life with you? God, that's the prayer. Help us to see you clearly. Help us to see you. We pray this in your name. Amen. Missio, when you're ready, we invite you to use those little elements to take communion, to recenter on the image of Jesus, and then would you enter into worship, picturing Jesus.